Well, we continue on in our sermon series this morning through the book of Psalms. For those who are visiting or new, uh, we endeavor every summer uh, to preach through the Psalms. That started several years ago. We are now at Psalm 75. I joked uh, this morning that we should be finished by 2030. My sermon this morning is entitled, God Executes Judgment. And as you heard read, it is from Psalm 75. Now, several weeks ago, in our very first sermon in the first Samuel series, we encountered a prayer by the mother of Samuel. Hannah, one of the most pious women in the Bible, prayed to the Lord after he had granted her a child. What I found so interesting this week is the themes of that prayer of Hannah are remarkably similar to the themes of Psalm 75. Now, here's what I said about that prayer in my sermon. What did this pious woman's prayer consist of? It consisted of a personal prayer of thanks for God's salvation, a general prayer of praise for God and his glorious attributes, It finishes with a prophetic prayer of God's coming salvation. Hannah's heart glories in the Lord. Yahweh has raised up for her a horn, a symbol of strength, in giving her a son. She rejoices in the salvation that God has worked for her. Then Hannah praises God because he is holy. There is none holy like the Lord. And Hannah praises God for his power. There is no rock like our God. And Hannah praises God for his knowledge. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God full of knowledge. Then Hannah praises God for his justice. By him, actions are weighed. Hannah's praise culminates in a picture of praise to Yahweh, who is sovereign in all things, working salvation for his people. And so Psalm 75 shares with Hannah's prayer many things. It shares the image of horns being lifted high, as in verse 1. It shares the concern of arrogance and boastfulness, in verse 3. It deals with the humbling of those who are apparently victorious and the uplifting of those who are apparently defeated, verse 4. It sees Yahweh as the one who exalts and humbles, verse 7. And it sees Yahweh as the one who provides stability to the world. And so I think Hannah's prayer and its similarities to Psalm 75 help us engage a psalm that maybe at first blush is a little bit too serious, a little bit too grave, because it's talking about God is judge and the judgment of God. And yet, Hannah had hopefulness. And so as we consider this prayer song, Psalm 75, let us have a hopeful posture as we consider its serious ideas. The first serious idea that Psalm 75 deals with and that we need to speak about is God as judge. Now, before we even get into Psalm 75, we need to understand God's relationship to judgment and God's 
role as sovereign judge. Australian New Testament scholar Leon Morris said that judgment, as the Hebrews came to understand it, is first and foremost an activity of God. Now, as we take a few moments this morning to consider God as judge, I'm going to use the King James Version just for this point because it has employed the words judge and judgment where many other translations have used the word justice. Now, justice is very closely related to judgment. But really, justice indicates the result of God's judgment. So for example, in Isaiah 30, 18, in the English Standard Version, we read, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now that same verse in the King James Version reads this way, and therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Now, this isn't problematic that these different translations use different words that are very similar. They're often interchangeable, and they're interchangeable even within the same translation. But I think it's helpful to think of justice as being that which is arrived at because God is judge and because of his judgment. And so in light of that, let's understand that God's judgments, since he is the ultimate judge, even are found in the judgment of human judges. Deuteronomy 117 in the King James Version says, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. A little later on in the Old Testament, Isaiah asks rhetorical questions in regards to God's dispensation of justice through judgment. And by asking those questions, he indicates God's character and God's ability to judge by saying, who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? Or being his counselor hath taught him with whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. That's Isaiah 40, verse 14. God is the God of judgment. Judgment itself is God. Nobody taught God about this. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, in the King James Version, tells us, that he is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right he is. All his ways are judgment. Genesis 18.25 calls God the judge of all the earth. Now, as we talk about judgment, we need to understand that judgment in the Bible has the basic idea of discrimination, of distinguishing between right and wrong. Now, this activity, when performed by humans, is, is often flawed, but it is performed perfectly by God. 
We need to understand, however, that this discrimination, this determination of right and wrong is, is not just a mental activity. The biblical concept of judgment and the biblical role of judge entails the idea of action. It entails and includes the idea of activity. A judge not only discerns what is right and what is wrong, the judge acts on it. The judge does something. And it is that distinction which makes me think the word judgment is often better than the word justice. You see, justice in our day is largely perceived to be an intangible concept. It's, it's an idea that's out there. Whereas judgment seems to me to be really connected to action. And so as we talk about judgment, we need to understand that God as judge is a God who acts. He makes a determination and then he does something. It's an activity of discrimination, but also an activity of vindication. And that is how God is judge. Now, what qualifies God to be a judge? In fact, what qualifies God to be the judge? Well, the omnis of God qualify him to make perfect judgments and to bring about justice. By omnis, I mean he is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. And so when the prophet Jeremiah declares, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. We must acknowledge that God needs nothing and fears nothing. And that allows him to do whatever he pleases. And he can do what he pleases, including judging, without being tempted by bribery, because he needs nothing, without being afraid of the opinions of others, because he does what pleases him. This is the kind of judge that the world needs. God's omniscience is clearly laid out by the psalmist in Psalm 147, verse 5. When he exalts, great is our Lord. And abundant in power, his understanding is beyond measure. God's immeasurable, infinite knowledge makes him the perfect judge because he sees every angle and perspective. He knows every motivation of every heart. He perceives every extenuating circumstance. He can decipher the conflicting statement of every witness. And he knows every bit of data from which he can deliberate. God's omnipresence means that he is a first-hand witness to everything. There is nothing that happens for which God is not a first-hand witness. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now further to the omnis of God, 
Scripture makes it clear that God is impartial, that God is unchanging, and that God is good. All of these speak to him being the perfect judge. Romans 2.11 says, God shows no partiality. God's self-declaration in Malachi 3.6 is, I, the Lord, do not change. And the psalmist declares in Psalm 25, verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. And so God is the judge of the whole earth. God is judgment and judgment is God. He is the God of judgment. He knows all things. He can do all things and he is present everywhere. He is without bias. He does not change, and he is good, perfectly good in all his ways. Now, we haven't even got to Psalm 75 yet, and yet I think this is an ideal time this morning to consider the gospel. As we all consider God is judge, and we reflect on the fact that his judgments always bring about justice, and he is the one who acts in regards to that. We should all have a sense of uneasiness this morning. We should all have a sense of uneasiness in regards to God as judge because we are all sinners. And through our sin, we have rejected and maligned the judge of the whole earth who created us and to whom we owe love and fealty. All have sinned, and all will be judged. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. Not only will all people be judged, but they will be judged in regards to everything. Romans 2.16 informs us that God will judge the secrets of men. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 informs us God will judge the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. No sin will escape God's judgment. This is a serious matter. And Romans chapter 1, verse 32 shatters our indifference because it indicates that the wages of sin is death. And the perfect judge of the world will find every human guilty and deserving of punishment because of sin. And since biblical judgment assumes action, every sinner, meaning every human, should anticipate the judgment of God to fall on them. And I hear you thinking, well... If the gospel means good news, then where's the good news in all of that? Well, the gospel, the good news is that for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, through repenting of their sins and availing themselves of Christ's death and of his resurrection from the dead, there is no need to fear the judgment of God. 1 John 4, 15 through 17 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. 
So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Followers of Christ need not cower when we think about judgment, when we think about God as judge. Rather, those who have confessed Christ and who have come to know God's love for them through Christ can be confident in regards to God's judgment, in regards to God as judge. The good news of the gospel is that the judgment for our sin fell on Christ. Now, don't make the mistake of saying believers don't have their sin judged. That is incorrect. Every sin is judged. The difference is for believers that judgment fell on Christ. Believers, this is cause for great rejoicing. And it's cause for great confidence, even in the face of God's judgment. Without Christ, without Christ, we all face God as judge. We all face the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe with nothing to plead our case except the sins we have committed. However, with Christ, as we abide with him and in him through faith. We stand before God the judge with the perfect life of Christ and with his glorious redemptive work as our defense. With Christ, the only defense you have is the sins you have committed. With Christ, you have his perfect life and his redemptive death and his resurrection from the dead as your defense. That is good news. So believer, rejoice and be confident. Unbeliever, seriously consider availing yourself this morning of Christ's work. So we have seen how the Bible portrays God as judge and how the Bible describes very quickly what his judgment is like. So let's now hone in on Psalm 75 to consider specifically what it teaches us about God as judge. God is judge in Psalm 75. In Psalm 75, we have two statements about the judgment of God and two warnings about the judgment of God. In verse 2 and 3, we see that God's judgment has as its foundation the sovereignty of God. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. God is a sovereign judge. He controls time. He controls time in such a way that he will judge at his appointed time and none can thwart him when he chooses to do so. Further, because God is sovereign, his judgment is always 
perfectly timed. What's more, God's sovereignty means that he is the source of order and stability for life. God maintains all things. He directs all things. He ordains all things. And so he is a sovereign judge. That's the first statement Psalm 75 makes about God and his judgment. He is a sovereign judge. Then in verses 6 and 7, we see another statement. God's judgment is inescapable. From east to west, even in the wilderness, it's God's judgments that will determine the raising up of one and the putting down of another. God executes his judgment. They cannot be avoided. They cannot be averted. They cannot be evaded. They are inescapable. This is what Psalm 75 teaches us about God, the judge. Now, these statements of the psalmist in regards to God as judge are punctuated in Psalm 75 with warnings. Warnings against those whom the judgment of God is sure to come upon. The psalmist is saying in this psalm, here's what we know about God as judge. And with what we know about God as judge, you better have these things on your radar. And the first warning is a warning against pride and arrogance. This is a clear indication that a significant characteristic of the wicked is hubris. The warning to not boast is given. This is reiterated with figurative illustrations, with pictures. Do not lift up your horn. Do not speak with a haughty neck. Now, the horn is an image of power and authority and dignity and pride. And so as you think about this picture of raising your horn, think about an elephant that brandishes its tusks, showing all the other animals how great it is. Or, or think about a stag showcasing its antlers to show off in front of all the other animals, how great he is. To raise one's horn is to make an exhibition of your potency and your strength. With God as judge, you ought not to do that. A haughty neck is a picture of an ox who will not submit to the yoke that's been placed Upon it. It is a picture of a horse who will not submit to the reins that are supposed to direct it. It portrays a rebelliousness, a stubbornness, particularly in regards to those to whom you should defer and honor. The next warning is as follows verse 8 For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Oh, this warning does not indicate what one should not do. It's a warning of what will happen if you do those things. If you are arrogant and rebellious, if you are full of pride and unwilling to yield to God, he will see to it that you drink the cup of wrath. Now, there's several places in the Bible where we can understand that this cup that Psalm 75 is speaking about is indeed a cup of wrath. For example, Jeremiah 25, 15. 
where the judgment of God is clearly connected to this cup. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. God as the judge, as the one who passes judgment, will pour out that cup of wrath on the wicked. That is, he will act in regards to his deliberation and his decisions. And this warning in particular is very likely speaking of the final judgment, the judgment on the last day wherein God, through Jesus Christ, will hold all people to account. Now these statements in Psalm 75 and these warnings in Psalm 75 are a clarion call to all mankind that they should humble themselves before the sovereign God of the universe. Their wickedness will be weighed. Their evil deeds will be taken into account. And should they not humble themselves and surrender to God, they will face his wrath. Psalm 75 doesn't just describe God as judge and describe the nature of his judgment. It also indicates how a person ought to respond to those things. The response of God's people to God as judge, in light of how weighty this sermon has been so far, may be surprising, but it's unmistakable. Seeing God as the ultimate judge that he is and understanding something of his act of judgment should elicit a response from us. And this is our final point this morning. Our response to God as judge. The two responses this psalm proposes are thanksgiving and praise. In verse 1, we are called to give thanks for God's wondrous deeds, which surely points to his wondrous deeds of judgment. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks For your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. In verse 9, we are admonished through the example of Asaph, the author of this psalm, to declare that God is judge and that God judges men, lifting up the humble and throwing down the proud, and to sing praises to the God of Jacob. Perhaps we put ourselves in the best place to apply this text. The application being thanking and praising God because he is a judge and because he judges by answering the question, what is it about the judgment of God? What is it about seeing God as judge that should elicit praise and thanks? And I think we best answer that question this morning by considering this idea as it is presented to us in the New Testament. I'm going to Read Revelation chapter 4, 9 through 12. So we can see this isn't just the Old Testament God. That this is the God of both Testaments. Revelation 14, 9 through 12. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, 
he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God, It is absolutely clear that ultimately God will bring judgment on humanity. And often this is an idea that we would prefer not to think about. It's certainly not an idea that our initial response might be thanksgiving and praise. However, God's word presents God's judgment, including the final judgment, as a reality which every created human being must face. And so burying our heads in the sand is not going to help us this morning. Ignoring this truth will not do us any good. This psalm encourages praise and thanks for two reasons. First, we can find comfort in the realization that all of the injustices of this world All of the evil caused by sin and by the sinfulness of human beings will not go unpunished. And I believe that every human being has in their soul a desire for a cosmic reckoning, a desire that everything would be made right. And though some people may say flippantly that they don't like this idea of God as judge, They don't like to think about God and his judgments. Ask the victim of rape whether or not they want justice. Ask the abused child who is struggling with relationships and mental health if they want justice. Ask the oppressed and the marginalized and the exploited of the world if they desire for things to be set aright. Don't allow your comfortable life in North America to think that this isn't the way it should be. To quench that desire that justice would reign. The judgment of God will happen and this should cause us to be thankful and to praise him. That one day he will make everything right. Now, second, and we've already talked about it this morning, and we've celebrated it this morning at the communion table, for those who have found forgiveness of their sins in Christ, for those who have been reconciled to God through his death on the cross, we must understand that this psalm, for those people, directs our gaze to Jesus. And it reminds us that Jesus drank the cup of God's punishment on our behalf. For those who put their faith in Christ, he drank the cup of wrath for us. He asked that that cup could pass from him. Let this cup pass from me, he said, understanding it to be the wrath of God against the sins of humanity. But he drank it. 
and he drank it to the dregs for those who come to faith in him. So, even though this is a grave topic, it's a heavy topic, the picture of God as judge painted by this psalm calls forth our praise and our thanks. We are to praise God as judge. We are to thank him that his justice will right all wrongs. We are to praise him for his sovereign power and his infinite wisdom, which enables him to judge perfectly in righteousness. And brothers and sisters, we can thank God and we can praise God that his grace abounds to us in Jesus Christ that the salvation of sinners through the only Son is in the face of God as judge. One final application as I finish this morning that we can make from Psalm 75 is to see the motivation it gives us to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who haven't heard it or don't yet believe it. Brothers and sisters, we must proclaim the gospel. We must share the good news of Christ receiving our judgment instead of us. We must share that news because they are barreling headlong into a deluge of wrath that God will one day pour out on sinners. He will one day pour out on those who have not surrendered to him through faith in Christ. Psalm 75 calls us to evangelism, to proclaiming the good news of men and women, finding refuge from God's judgment, finding refuge from the judgment of God against sin in Jesus Christ, and the whole salvation that comes with that. Put simply, praise, thanksgiving, and gospel proclamation are what we are called to. Because God has said unequivocally, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. God is the sovereign judge of the universe. God will judge the arrogant, the proud, the wicked. In short, God will judge sinners. But Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, becomes a refuge for sinners who have turned from their sin and put their faith in him. This is cause for thanks. This is cause for praise. And this is cause for us to be motivated to share this good news with those who don't believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this book of songs, this book of prayers, and we thank you for Psalm 75. I pray, Father God, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to conceive and understand what it means that you, God, are the judge, the sovereign judge of the universe, and that we will understand in deeper and more profound ways your judgments. I pray, Father God, that they would move us even in light of how heavy they are, how difficult they are in some ways, they will move us to thanks. Thankful that one day justice will reign, that you will make all things right. 
and that they'll move us to praise, to praise you as the all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful judge of all things who judges perfectly and brings about that justice. And I pray most of all that you, by your Spirit, will call unbelievers to you through your Son, that they might, Father God, have your judgment against their sin fall on Christ instead of them, that they might glory in the grace of Jesus Christ who came to die to save sinners, and that they, together with all those of us who do believe, would rejoice in such a great salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.